Welcome to the Andrew Price Podcast, the podcast for serious artists who want to get ahead and uh, learn the habits, techniques, tricks uh, to uh, to land a job and just become better artists. That's the point of this podcast. <clears throat> um, this podcast is going to be about money. Yeah, a little underrated skill that artists should learn how to make money, um, which would sound to some to be antithetical, <laughs> antithetical, the opposite of art. Um, but that's not necessarily true for one. And also if you don't make money, then you don't get to make art. <laughs> you have to do what I used to do and have a daytime job lifting bricks. Um, and then in the evenings, uh, do your art. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I've, I've been in business for myself, uh, for a good 10 years now. Um, I was able to quit my full-time job at the brick, whatever laboring job that I was doing. I was, my final job was a debt collector, actually. Um, and, uh, and ever since then, I've just been doing uh, uh, Blender Guru and then Polygon. And um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's never been a better time to be your own boss with all the, 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 the stuff that's available. And 3D is a growing industry. It is very new to a lot of people and there is a lot of need for it, but there is not enough people to fill that need. So it's a great time to, uh, to make some money. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to be answering, I'm going to be answering questions about, you know, um, uh, you know, selling models, uh, applying for a job, um, spending your money on, on purchases that will actually help your career as well. Um, with, with questions from the community. So if you want to send in a question for the next podcast, blendingguru.com forward slash podcast question. Um, before we get to the money, I spent some money and I, I want to say it because it, it was, it was such a good purchase. I spent some money on a game, which I think was the, is the best game I've played in probably 10 years. <clears throat> Last of Us part two, uh, just finished it on the PlayStation four and uh, I just wanted to talk about it and, and really just to give a shout out to all the artists that worked on it. That game is fantastic. I mean, really, it, it's like, I mean, uh, granted, I say it's the best game of 10 years. I don't play a lot of video games. Uh, I got two kids. I got a business. Yeah, I don't have a lot of time for it. But, you know, most games, you know, played Flight Simulator. <laughs> you know, that's an incredible concept, you know, being able to, fly around the whole world, but it's a concept and you get bored of it fast. You know, I played Red Dead Redemption 2. That was cool. Story, eh, eh, not really all there. So <clears throat> I find like a lot of games, they sort of, they hit one of the quadrants, right? One of the marks, like an interesting thing or this or something like that. Like it's really good visuals, but the story sucks or really good story, but it's janky and you know, whatever. I felt like Last of Us 2 really hit all of them. Right, it, it, it was like visually just top of its game. Animation, by the way, uh, I'm not an animation guy. I don't know character animation, but even I watching it could tell like whoever did the character animation for this is incredible. Like the transitions between like, you know, like running or like going up behind someone and grabbing them. It was like, <clears throat> I mean, really, I'd never seen it before. It felt like you were sort of the person and like your actions were actually like, fluid like and just like the little details throughout the game like uh, you go into a shop and then like you pick up this little snow globe and then you like you shake the snow globe and then the little 
pieces like fall down and you watch them fall down and then or like you jump over a countertop and like your leg hits the little spindle thing and all the like and it spins around it's like there's physics on the little spindle thing in case you hit it it's like it was almost too much i was i was really blown away by everything i saw uh it was it was too much it was it was everything and then of course you know if you just had that it's like, you know, well, do all, you know, technical artists, but sorry, the story team let you down or whatever. But in this case, it was propped up. It was like, the story was incredible as well. Um, so uh, I really loved it. I just want to give a, a shout out and also a big recommendation. Everyone go play that game. It's, it's really, really incredible. Actually, it brought me to tears in the end, um, which I don't think I've ever had in a video game before. Um, but yeah, I, I know it's, Actually, I was surprised. I looked online like Metacritic. I was like, yeah, what do people think of the game? Like, and then a lot of people, it was sort of divided. Like some people really hated it. Um, <clears throat> and it wasn't a perfect game, not by any means. And I agree, like some of the story choices of like yeah, Ellie's like just like unbarreled passion to just revenge at all costs seemed a little, I don't know. It was, it was a little weird there, but it was, it was a huge game and you play from one perspective and then another perspective. And there's this whole storyline with Abby, who's this really unique character. Um, I thought it was fantastic. It's a really good game. So shout out to everyone on that. Beautiful. Um, now let's get to the podcast. Money! Make some money so that you can play the next PlayStation game, whatever that's going to be. Tell you what, PlayStation's done a really good job, haven't they? Have like their exclusive releases because... Uh, that's the, I mean, I bought the PlayStation 4 so I could play Uncharted 4 and then I bought Last of Us and then Last of Us Part 2. And like, if I didn't have a PlayStation 4, I would have bought it for that too. But like, I don't know if there's any game that's made me think like, oh, I should get an Xbox. You know what I mean? I don't know. I feel like PlayStation's doing, making all the right moves. Um, <clears throat> so let's make some money, guys. Let's make some cash with our first question Ooh, that's uh, an interesting name. Andrej, Andrej. That's uh, one of those names I shouldn't try to pronounce. Hi, Andrew. My name is Andra. I am from the Andra. Czech Republic. And I would like to ask you if there is an effective way to promote my 3D models that I sell on the internet. 3D models are a specific product which only interests a specific group of people. It's not like promoting clothes on the internet or something like this. So how do I persuade target audience to choose my 3D models in an extensive library like TurboSquid? And where else can I advertise my models besides ArtStation? Thank you for your answer. Very good question, Andre from Czech Republic. Um, you're actually right. Like a 3D model is a specific it, it, it's, 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 it fills a specific need. So you can't just like, you know, use the same marketing tactics that you would if you were selling a t-shirt because you could just throw that up on, you know, Instagram ads or something and get sales. So your, your product, your 3D model, um, it, it fills a specific need. So how do you, how do you make money from it, right? And why is it that so many artists are selling products on TurboSquid, CG Trader, uh, Sketchfab, all those places, and then not making money. Why is that? Um, so in my opinion, it is because uh, they are not choosing to model the right thing in the first place, okay? 
That is the biggest factor in all of this, okay? There are some model categories which are oversaturated and, um, you know, nobody needs any more of. And then there are other ones which are undersaturated. There's a real need for it and you could charge a high price for it, but you don't know what those are. And so that's really what this comes down to is, is choosing the right thing to model. So um, there's a, an old business idiom, maxim, you could call it, uh, which is very applicable um, to anybody entering into 3D models. In fact, most of the business world is, is applicable to 3D models as well. And it's that you shouldn't be trying to solve problems. You should be, sorry, you shouldn't be creating solutions. You should be trying to solve problems. Okay, I'll say it again. You shouldn't be creating solutions. You should be trying to solve problems. So what does that mean? Uh, creating a solution is, uh, as an example, going like, you know what? I'm going to make a pack of alien spaceships, right? It's going to be like 40, 50 alien spaceships so that people can use them in a mobile video game or a VFX shot. And it'd be like a pack of, of spaceships. Great. I'll make that. Versus oh, I've spoken to people and I've discovered there's a real need for tree models that actually provide separate level of detail versions for the different use cases across a shot so that it can be realistic, but still optimized depending on what they're using, right? That's the difference, okay? When you are creating a solution, it's you think you know what users' problems are without talking to them and going, I know what I'm doing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that and then creating a product that nobody actually needs. Nobody needs a pack of alien spaceships, okay? I mean, it's possible that somebody's making the next, uh, I don't know, Space Invaders game on mobile, and they really do need some generic models that anyone could purchase, and therefore the IP of your game is already kind of ruined. <laughs> like, a spaceship is so integral to the game, you would hope that you would have unique models, so you wouldn't want them from a pack. Um, so, so that, that is so, it, it, it's so weird, like a spaceship, you would almost never want to buy it as a model. Okay. So, so that's the other thing, like the, the amount of time you spend modeling something is, uh, is almost not a factor here because you could spend the same amount of time modeling, uh, and I'm going to use it as an example again, the birdhouse example, right? You could make the most beautiful, perfect birdhouse model right? With beautiful wood that's like beveled and maybe it's even rigged so that the flap opens and the roof of it's got little bits of leaves in it and it's really high detail, but it's a bird model. Sorry, birdhouse. What, what, who's going to buy that? Okay. Who needs a birdhouse and at that detail? Okay, sure. A couple of people might, maybe somebody's working on a commercial with a bird in a tree and you want to have a birdhouse or something like, maybe, just maybe, but it's not going to fill, uh, it's not going to fill your bank account. Okay. Whereas if you spent the exact same amount of time making something that fills a need in the marketplace, um, you could have a hundred X the sales. So that's, that's what I want to stress people to focus on. Um, the way you find out what the need is, is by talking to people, okay? And it's the same thing for business. It's called, um, it's like the lean startup methodology. And the first step is user interviews. You go out and find your ideal customer and you interview them and find out what are your problems. What's just, and it's just an open question. What are your problems? And then they go, oh, you know, it's like, 
you know, the studio, working at the studio, it's like we have to deal with all sorts of different demands from the client. The client re- requests this, but we can't find it online and blah, 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 blah. And, and, you know, other questions like what, what do you like about the way you currently solve that problem? What do you dislike about it? There's actually a book, Running Lean by Ash Moriah, which would actually give you, it actually gives you the script to use when you talk to people. Um, but anyways, the, the, the whole point of this uh, is, is, is getting out there and talking to people. So obviously it's hard, like you can't just like email a studio and expect an answer on this sort of stuff, but talking to individual studios that, sorry, individual artists that work at studios is a much more accessible. So you could find people in Facebook groups, on Discord. Um, The best case is actually like in meetups, in real life meetups, conferences are just a gold mine when they're ever open again, because you can just go up and join a group and find out you're talking to people that work at studios and you go, Hey guys, just, I want to make some money as like selling models, but like what models do you need? And they'll tell you what their problems are because every studio buys models and the artists are the ones that are responsible for fixing the models because all of them have problems. The texture stretched or they didn't bother about the topology or whatever else. And they'll tell you exactly what they need and what problems that it'll fill. And that'll also tell you, you said, how do you persuade people Oh, series chirped up. Uh, how do you persuade people to actually buy it? By talking to people, you'll find out what what are the pain points that you need to serve. So in your 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 sales page, where you've got the the images or whatever for each of the things, you'll be able to say like you know the, the topology. Like look at the topology. Uh, oh, sorry, this Siri thing's really distracted me. Go away, Siri. She said, "On it, on what?" Okay. Um, yeah, you'll be able to like show the topology of the image and, and like, like we've solved that problem. Or like, look, this is the close-up. So you can see there's no texture stretching. You'll learn all this stuff there. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just huge. It's like, you know, the old adage um, or, or the quote, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said like, if you had, if I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first seven sharpening the ax, right? It, it's the exact same thing here, right? Like the time that you, the most valuable time you spend is at the start when you're deciding what it is that you, you want to model. Everything else after that is almost out of your control, right? Like you don't need to bother about marketing it because yeah, it's, it's only filling a specific purpose. So all your sales are going to come through search, search for people who have a specific problem right now and they need to buy something to fit it doesn't matter about like, even if it was an amazing model and you put it up on ArtStation, it got lots of likes. It's not going to translate into sales, like very, very unlikely, unless it was something that was like massly used and solved like a real problem for a lot of people on ArtStation. Like, I don't know, it was like a plugin for grass, a like my grass essentials product or something like that, right? That might maybe convert, but most of your sales are going to be from search. It's for people who are on the marketplace ready to buy. And so you just need to, yeah, you need to, you pick, pick the right thing. So people click it and then you'll be able to show the right stuff so that they actually buy it. And then you can charge what you want because you're actually solving real problems that, uh, that people need. So that's my advice for you, Andrej. Andrej. Um, yeah, the next person is a much easier name to pronounce. Mike. <laughs> All right, let's take it away, Mike Hodge. Hodges. Hey, Andrew, my name's Mike, I'm from England, and my question is twofold in relation to getting a job specifically within ArcVis. Um, I've had a fairly successful career 
um, completely separately to CG um, in sales and marketing for the last kind of like seven or eight years. Um, I've been using Blender on and off since probably about 2005 or so. Um, my skill level is now, I feel, at a point where I'm technically capable of uh, getting a job within the industry. Um, and firstly, how do you go about doing that in terms of you know, is it, do you just apply to studios um, or, you know, how, how does that process work? Um, and secondly, in relation to portfolios, um, what makes a good portfolio, what should go into it um, and what kind of variety do, do people want to see? Uh, yeah, so any insights you have would be really appreciated. Thanks. Good question, Mike. How to get a job, right? The age old uh, easy way to make some cash, get a job. You don't want to be your own boss, that's fine. You need a salary. You need a uh, regular recurring income to put some food on the table. That's that's great. So how do you get a job? Okay, so there was two questions there that was like, you know, portfolio and then like how to actually apply at studios. So I'll address the portfolio one um, first. You said, so what do people want to see in a portfolio? That really depends on the studio that you are applying for. Okay, so going back to the last episode, we talked about whether it's better to be a jack of all trades or to specialize. And that depends on the size of the studio. If you are applying at a 300 person studio, then you probably, uh, they probably want to see something very niche. Like you're a, I don't know, technical director pipeline of like plugins or a rigger, right? Um, they, they want to see something very niche because you're going to be part of a pipeline. You're going to be getting one product from something else. You're going to work on it and then you're going to hand it to the next person. Okay. If you're going to be applying instead at say a studio of like five to 10 people, then they're probably going to be looking for somebody more generalized, right? They want somebody who can be part of the team that are solving problems. Okay. The day-to-day -day issues. They want to be able to say, Hey, Mike, uh, can you model this couch, right? Uh, because we need that for this, this client's requested this weird, unique couch. Can you model that? And then the next day they want to be able to say, Hey, can you, um, fix the light? Like, can you light this shot for us? Right. So you need to know the lighting. They, they, they want a, a general run and gun, you know, generalist, right? Because you're working at a smaller, small place. So that's generally how it goes. And then in terms of like what to actually show in your portfolio, well, that also depends on the place that you are applying at and um, uh, yeah, the industry. All right. So you said Archviz. Okay. So Archviz, I mean, there's different types of Archviz. There's sort of like concept phase and you know, whatever. And then there's the high, high image glossy stuff. Let's say, you know, you're doing the high image glossy stuff. Like the, the boundary is a great studio in the UK that is um, that is, uh, yeah, they're doing like the high photorealistic glossy stuff. Okay. If you just go to their website, theboundary.com or whatever it is, actually, I don't know what it is. Um, and then just look at their work. You'll see, they got like animations of like these apartment buildings with the city in the background. So there's some tracking there. And then they've got these interior shots with beautiful lighting and the curtains moving and, uh, you know, close up shots of, of furniture, uh, wide shots to show the, the sense of scale. All that stuff is exactly what you need to put in your portfolio. You don't even need to ask them, what do, what do you want to see? You can just see it by looking at the website. That's what you need to be having in your portfolio because that's going to tell them like whether or not you're at the standard that they would need to hire someone at, right? So then it just comes to quality, right? Like how good are you at your job? Okay. Um, so, I mean, that's really the, I mean, all this advice that I'm giving you is just going to be naught if you're not actually good at what you do. And that I think should go without saying you, everyone should know that. Um, so yeah, 
anyways, if, if you're creating the, the, the like, if, this is what I would do. If I wanted to apply at the boundary, I wanted to get a job, I'd go to their website, look at the work they want to do. And then I'd find other images, like actual photos of similar things like apartments and other things like that. And I would just recreate it in Blender, render it out and show it to them. Okay. And, and then that's it. Right. Then it my my work just stands, uh, it, it's up for their judgment and whether I hit the mark or not is up to them. And that's all they need to know. Right. Um, so yeah, you, I mean, just in the ArchViz space, I'd probably say like photorealistic rendering, you need to know, you understand that, like, you know, the correct colors of things, the, the, the material properties, the lighting, all that kind of stuff is very important. Um, and then probably like interior design, because, um, often the client has specific instructions, but sometimes they don't. And it's up to you to choose the right material or the right furniture to actually fit the scene. So, um, I've seen some ArchViz artists do like, you know, technically beautiful work, that is like photorealistic and whatever, but the, they copied an image or something, they made it themselves and they weren't actually good at interior design. And so the image just feels like, bleh, doesn't look nice, right? Whereas if you actually just used photo reference of like something from Arc Daily or uh, Dezine or anything on Behance and just took some of those like really like by world-class professionals of interior design that already, you know, they've got the design down pat and then just copied it and recreated a photo in your respective uh, software. That'd definitely be the way to go. Cause that's the thing, like, um, although it shouldn't matter, like if you're applying as a technician, right? If you show somebody like an image that, as I said, the first example, like something that looks actually like technically great, but crappy design, it actually weighs down the whole image. Even though I myself looking at it, I know that I'm looking for a technical eyes. It doesn't matter that they don't know interior design. It just, it weighs it down. It's like, it comes to everything. Like I made this, uh, the cabin in the woods scene, right? On, on my YouTube channel. And I showed that tutorial, this, this cabin, forest cabin or whatever, right? But like, I'm not a, I'm not a concept artist. I don't know, you know, good environment concept art. If I did, I could have, without adding any extra work to it, knew how to add like the right amount of detail and shape language and things to make a more visually interesting image that could have like 10 X how good it looked as an example. Anyways, uh, okay, so that's what to put in your portfolio. Then you said, um, how do you actually apply? Which is another very good question. Um, do you just email them? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So uh, if I were you, I just put together a list of ArchViz studios that you're interested in applying in and then just go to their website, find their email address and then reach out to them. Now, I actually didn't used to think this was good advice because I thought like if a studio has an opening, they're going to advertise it and emailing them out of the blue is just going to annoy them. But that is not true. <laughs> now that I've run a business for so long, I know that hiring is it's a pain in the ass. It really is. It's Nobody really enjoys hiring people except people that are in hiring, <laughs> maybe. Um, it's, it's just a pain in the ass. It's expensive. It's time consuming. Everybody has to stop what they're doing because they have to interview people. You have to go through applications. It's a job. And so it's pushed off way later than it should be, right? You end up hiring someone way after you actually need them. That if you get somebody who just knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm a generalist, 3D artist. I was wondering, you know, if you have any work at Polygon, we check out your portfolio and go, please be what we're looking for, <laughs> right? So we've, we've hired, I think there's a handful of artists at Polygon that we've actually hired from people who just emailed us out of the blue, 
right? One of them, absolutely fantastic. He was just like a game artist and he did like some texture work and we're like, can you do this, this? And he joined the team and now he's like, yeah, one of our head like photo scanning guys because he just learned on the job and he was just prepared to, you know, go the mile. So it's been fantastic. So anyways, point is, is that, yes, you can definitely reach out to them and just see if they're, yeah. They'll, and here's the other thing. Even if they're, they're, um, they're not available, they'll often hold on to your portfolio for when they do and if they do. And the other thing is, is if you're not at the level required, you don't meet their standards yet, it's an opportunity for you to get real feedback because nobody likes to give a rejection letter and say, look, sorry, your work is just not up to standard. So I usually start with that. But then if they come back to me and say, hey, Andrew, I, no worries. I really want to improve as an artist. Could you just tell me like, what could I improve on that you would want to hire me? Then I give feedback. And then that, that's like, so it's a win-win, like the outcome of whether you get the job or whether you get some killer feedback that'll really help you um, in your portfolio to know what to improve on. That can be an outcome as well. So that's brilliant. And I think most studios will want to give feedback. As long as you tell them, like, you, you can't offend me. Like I'm not, you, know, you can be as harsh as you like. I just want feedback so that I can improve and maybe you could hire me in the future or something like that. So it's a win-win there. Um, and then other than that, you know, just make sure that you've got a portfolio that is in all the places that people are already looking. So Archviz, it's like Behance and I think like CG Architect maybe, but also ArtStation, right? Um, those, those places. And then you just want to be uh, watching for job openings because that is, of course, the other very easy way to get a job. Just wait till there's an actual opening and then apply and then enter the pool and see how you go, essentially. Okay, but... That was my answer for you, Mike. Um, before we get to the next question, speaking of Archviz, if you are in Archviz and you need materials, because of course you do, Polygon, P-O-L-I-I-G-O-N is my company. And we sell textures and materials and models uh, for people specializing in Archviz uh, especially. But we're also, you know, explicable for environment art and everything else. So we've got brand new collections of PhotoScan grounds um, that look amazing. We've got some uh, beautiful plants that are already in uh, pots. Uh, beautiful for interiors. We've also just released Terrazzo, this uh, amazingly colorful, versatile material, which is like all the rage in... Um, uh, interior design at the moment. Um, we've also just released uh, some new roofing textures, uh, ceramic tiles, etc. And then what was the other one that was in that? Uh, plaster, believe it or not, plaster is a very popular material in interior design. Not like the, you know, flat drywall stuff, but like the different troweling and like the high gloss one and the polished ones and that's the kind of thing that you find on Polygon and only Polygon because we specialize in looking at the interior uh, trends of architecture and then creating textures and materials to fill that. So if you're interested, Polygon, P-O-L-I-I-G-O-N.com and uh, start making better renders faster. That's our tagline. Now let's get to the next question from Brooke. Let's hear from Brooke. It's not playing. It's not playing. Hi, oh, Andrew. My name is Brooke, and I've been using Blender for about five months now, 
just on my Apple MacBook Pro. And my question is, as somebody who wants to take their 3D work to the next level um, with Blender, what would you say are the minimum investments that I should make, whether it be uh, graphics cards or certain kinds of computers or any kind of gear that you would say is definitely worth the money spending? And on the opposite side of that, is there anything that you think people tend to waste their money on that's not necessarily essential to bringing their 3D work to that next point? Um, yeah, so I hope that that was a good question. Thanks. Yeah, very good question, Brooke. Um, <laughs> you mentioned you've got a, a MacBook, MacBook Pro. Unfortunately, my advice is uh, graphics cards, which is not uh, very <laughs> helpful for MacBook Pro users. Um, but graphics card, nothing else really uh, in terms of like value for money, good purchases that artists should make um, really comes close to graphics cards. The reason being, yes, obviously your final render time will be lower, um, but more importantly, your ability to work in the viewport in rendered view mode um, and see uh, in real time, what's happening in your scene allows you to make thousands of creative decisions as opposed to working in wireframe mode because your graphics card is so slow, doing a bunch of stuff and then hitting render and then, you know, getting distracted while it renders for two minutes and then coming back and going, oh, that's not what I need. And you can go from like maybe making like three creative decisions a day to 3000 creative decisions per hour when you have a graphics card, um, which is able to work in almost real time, right? So if you've got the money for it and you can find them available, the 3090 is absolutely the best bang for your buck. Um, it's uh, like twice as fast, I think, as the previous one, the one that I've got, RTX Titans, um, and I think like half the price. It is, it is amazing. We're entering into a new realm, as I said, for uh, the, the the trends of 2021 to look out for. I think uh, real-time ray tracing, re like honest, serious, uh, not a fakery, real ray tracing, being in the viewport with the optics denoiser, it's it's there. So it's uh, it's an exciting time. If you can get that, then that will have a huge impact on uh, on your on your output for sure. Um, by the way, I'd drop in here as well. If you're a 2D artist, you, I know you said you're 3D, but if you're a 2D artist, what are some things? Um, probably the iPad Pro with a pencil or a Cintiq. Um, those two things are, you know, solid investment that you'll definitely get a lot of value out of. Um, I use the iPad Pro for a year and a half, just, uh, yeah, just doing, doing sketches in Procreate. It's outstanding. I've recently got a Cintiq because I want to be able to use a keyboard. I'm at the stage now where, you know, shortcuts are, are a big thing for me. So I'm using that, but those two things are huge. Um, but if you, if you're just interested in 2d and you haven't really delved into it, stick with a pencil and a paper for a month. Cause then you'll at least know whether or not you can bear the stresses of having to learn 2d because I know a lot of people that go out and buy a Cintiq and go, I'm going to, I'm going to make a change. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to learn 2d. And then they don't right? because 2d is very, very uh, punishing to new people. Um, so definitely, yeah, you don't want to spend money when it's wasted. So start with a pencil and paper for 2D. But anyways, the second half of your question was about what are the worst use, or the, what are the things that people spend the money on that is uh, the worst, the worst purchases? Let's just say that. Okay. Um, by far, by far, not even close. It is bad art schools. Okay. Which is important because most art schools are bad. 
in my honest opinion. Um, it is true. There is probably nothing better for you that would help you have the biggest impact on your growth and uh, success as an artist as finding an art teacher, a mentor, a coach who is really good and can give you targeted feedback to look at what's going wrong and what your problems and weaknesses are and addressing them so that you can get over that hurdle and and get to the next stage quicker rather than slaving over it for months uh, while while self-learning, okay? I totally recognize that and I see there is a huge value in art schools. The problem is, is that you as a beginner and as as somebody looking to... (laughs) to join an art school are in the worst possible situation to make that call of whether or not the art school is good because you know nothing about it. It's like, I, I don't know anything about basketball. Okay. And let's say there were basketball schools, right? Um, I would be in the worst position to make a decision on which basketball school was the best one for me, because I don't know the first thing about basketball. Um, I actually did it for like, just thinking like five or six years as a kid, but I've completely forgotten it. Okay. Um, I wouldn't know the first thing about it. So I, my, like, what am I looking for? I'm just going to be completely like it. I'll just go up to like the, the salesman, which let's, let's be honest. That's what the people, the orientation people are, they're salesmen. And I'm just ready to be steamrolled by whatever, you know, words they want to throw at me and like, show me the beautiful campuses and, Oh, look at this. And, and then they throw in stuff like, Oh, and one of the, the alumni last year just got picked up by this, uh, you know, amazing studio or going back to art schools. Uh, they always list the achievements of the alumni, right? Why do they only list one or two students out of the last alumni. That is a huge red flag, okay? The fact that you had 200 people graduate last year and you've only got one or two of them that are at a studio now, that's a huge red flag. But of course, you don't think that and you're ready to, you know, you want to believe, you know, it's like that that poster, the, the UFO. I want to believe when you're in that position, when you've been sold on the beautiful campuses and the, the facilities and the, the amazing, you know, the thing, and we've got better this and the other schools don't care about this. We do. You want to believe, you want to go like, yeah, I could see myself coming here, you know, yeah, coming on the bus or, you know, living in the, the little boarding houses, whatever they call it, the housing, right? You know, maybe I'll meet my future husband or wife here, you know, like that kind of thought. And you're sort of, you're sold in it and you want to believe that when they, they list that, yeah, this alumni just got picked up by Pixar. You got like, wow, I can do it. I could get a job. They don't, you know, your brain doesn't want to think about the other 199 students who they're not talking about. That is criminal. I mean, honestly, what what a lot of colleges are doing, I think, is borderline a scam. Um, and they should know better. And they probably do know better. Um, the fact that that art is so, it's so, it's so hard to stand out. It's, it's, it, and it requires so much uh, perseverance to punish yourself just get railroaded every single day you try it. It's to, to go from like, especially the early beginner stages. I'm thinking specifically about 2d, which is really, really punishing. It takes so much that, that, that traction to get up that hill. And then, 
and you don't know at the start, if you've never done it before, if that's actually what you're interested in. And a lot of people do like, they, they just sign up for it. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, man, it's, I, I really, I don't know what to do about it. I, I don't know what to do about it. I think, um, you know, it, companies like the rookies that I've talked about, um, that do a sort of an independent judgment of art schools around the world and show their ranking in comparison to other art schools. That's fantastic. I, I think that's a, that's a step in the right direction, but there's gotta be like thousands of schools that aren't even listed on the site, which should tell you everything you need to know about those art schools, right? The fact that they're not listed on the industry standard website should tell you everything. Um, it's not good. It's not a good look. Um, if you were looking to sign up to an art school, I swear I'll do an episode on it at some point, but if you were looking to sign up for an art school, the things you could do to, uh, to ensure that the school that you're going to sign up for is a good one is first of all, see if they're on the rookies. If they're not, um, that should be a huge warning and you should want to walk away, um, because they should be. (laughs) Okay. Um, two, and this is something that is really easy to, um, to do nowadays that we have the internet, but most people won't want to do because it requires a little bit of uh, putting yourself out there is to reach out to past students and ask their honest opinions. Okay. So this is really easy to do on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, just type in the name of the school and you'll see people that, you know, went to this school, right? All you got to do is private message them and said, Hey, I'm thinking of joining this program at the school that you went to. Um, it's very expensive <laughs> as all art schools are. And I want to make sure I'm doing, I'm making the right decision. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? Okay. And then they say, Oh yeah, sure. They, most people want to help. They're like, yeah, sure. Hit me up. And then your question should be, what did you like about the school? What did you dislike about the school? And particularly the, the, the class, the class professor, whatever you got, um, what did you dislike about it? And then, um, uh, a very important question, the other students in your class, how many of them do you know are working now or have got a job because of, because of uh, graduating, right? That should tell you everything. And then there's also the, the NPS question. Um, if you had to recommend on a scale of one to 10, um, how likely would you recommend the school to a friend or colleague, right? And if it's basically anything from one to six, that's a detractor. That means no, that should tell you, nope, do not go to that school. If it's seven, it means it's passive. It's like, eh. And if it's eight, nine or 10, then it means that they're a, um, forgot the word for it, but it means that they're, they're pro the, the, the school. Right. So that's a good thing. Um, so those questions, right. And just, you know, blast it out to 20 people. What's the worst thing they're going to say? No, ignore you. Who cares? I know that means a lot, you know, not getting a response when you're like, uh, you know, 16, 17, but, uh, no, it's, it, it really doesn't matter. So that could save you so much money. And my God, if every student did that before enrolling in a university, we could save billions across the planet (laughs) in debt. I swear to God. Um, because these schools, uh, are relying on the fact that you aren't going to do this. You aren't going to do your homework and you want to believe just like when you're ready to make a car purchase, it's exhausting going through all the options. You just, you find something you like and you go, I hope yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I like this one, this feature, this feature, this feature. Yeah. I like, I, I like it for those reasons. And you sort of, you just want to believe. Right. And unfortunately the, the, <laughs> 
It hits you later on when you realize that you've signed up for an art school that is not only not teaching the correct advice, but the teacher themselves can be absolute shite. Um, um, it might not even, it just might not be right for you as well. Like there are some instructors online um, that that have courses that I've signed up for that I know other people have enjoyed and have got a lot out of it. And I can't listen to more than like five, 10 minutes of it. Cause I, I, I lose track of what they're talking about. I don't, they use so many big $10 words and they're talking about all oh, the theory and the, the mindset and the, you got to put yourself in the space and the, and, and I'm like, this is all abstract, you know, but some people get a lot out of it. You might end up with a teacher that just doesn't resonate with you. So, I mean, that, that is my, like, would be my biggest nightmare if I was signing up for a school and just realizing that I've been conned and that I have enrolled and I'm going to be spending $35,000 a year for four years to get the bachelor of arts or whatever, um, with a teacher who is going to put me to sleep and it's not going to help me, or I'm going to show them my work. And I'm, this is the moment. This is the moment I've been working hard and I really want to know I'm struggling. How do I get to the next level? And I show them my work and then they go, um, it looks, it looks good. Um, yeah, no, um, probably work on, I think the shading could be, you know, and I can tell looking at it that they're just like fumbling. They don't know the answer. It'd be my worst nightmare, right? How can you learn that lesson before signing up is the question. So anyways, that was a bit of a tangent to really go on, but the biggest waste of money, bad art schools, right? And it's, and it's so much bigger than everything else. It's like, I was thinking about like, oh, I could also talk about like, oh, books, you know, books that you aren't going to read or, you know, hardware that doesn't make an impact on, on what you're going to do. But no, it's art school. I mean, so many people, like every conference I go to, like half the people there are students, uh, which is fine. It's great. And it actually, the fact that they're at a conference probably shows me that they're the ones who are going to succeed anyway. Um, but there's so many people at, at, at art schools and a lot of them are not enjoying it. They're not happy. They tell you that their instructor is not good and that most of the class just slacks off and plays Call of Duty. And they show me the work from their group projects. And they say that they did 90 to 99% of it because they're the only one in the group who actually knows how to use 3D software. And I believe them. And it looks awful, awful. Like I would expect somebody with a month of Blender to have done better than what this school is churning out. And it just, oh, it's like a stab through the heart. It's like, how can you do this? These schools are just robbing the next generation blindly. Um, anyways, yeah. So I ended up talking about art schools. Um, yeah. Let's go to um, another question. All right. Question from Peter. Hey, Andrew. I was listening to your podcast, episode five. You gave eight tips on how to make money as a CGI artist. I did. Tip five was setting 3D models through Shapeways and you thought they were from Amsterdam. As a matter of fact, Shapeways is located in Eindhoven. Tom Rosendahl studied there, Philips is from Eindhoven and so am I. Oh, come on. The Netherlands is like, isn't it like a, you just throw a stone? Couldn't you reach Engelhoven or something from Amsterdam? I remember someone told me you could like bike from like the countryside to the city in like 20 minutes or something. Isn't that true? Isn't it like really tiny? Come on. 
Come here, break there. I didn't get Engelhoven or Amsterdam. It's Netherlands. Eh, it's tiny. Come on. <laughs> I'm a product designer and starting doing more and more product visualizations. The donut tutorial was my introduction to Blender, which I really enjoyed. I basically left all my previous 3D software behind and never looked back since. A huge thanks for that. So onto my question. How do you run your company Polygon? I know it contains many questions, but I was curious to, um, to know how to work together on Blender scenes and or projects. What skills do the team members have? You mentioned you use Asana for project management. What are your key tips there? Maybe you can give us 10 tips on to start a small CGI business. I personally would start like, this answer is brought to you by Polygon. Thanks. Thank you, Pieter. Um, yeah. Um, well, that was, uh, I mean, 10 tips on creating a CG business is hard because I guess it depends on what business you're going into. Um, you know, your question about like what, what, how do you share Blender files? We don't really share Blender files because a lot of our artists just use whatever, right? Um, you know, it could be 3D's Max, uh, Substance Painter, whatever gets the job done, we don't really care. And all our files have to be applicable in all the uh, software and engines anyway. So it's, it's different there. But, um, you know, the advice that I gave at the start for the, the, the 3D models is oddly applicable here. Um, so let me give a few tips. Okay. I'm just going to broad tips on creating a business. Okay. Uh, yeah. Create, uh, solve problems. Don't create solutions. That is number one. By far businesses would succeed if they did that more. Um, number two, talk to users. Okay. And that's partly related to number one. You got to talk to your future customers because you don't know what they want yet. Okay. Um, my wife is starting a cookie making business, right? She's really interested in cookies. She's about, you know, what, you know, what cookies do people want? What, what, what colors, what, what flavors, you know, should it be high price? Should it be low price? You know, this kind of thing. And it's like, you got to talk to them. You got to go out there and meet them. Like who are these people that are having parties that need to have cookies? What are their questions and concerns? Um, you don't know you, and this is the problem. And this is something I've learned at Polygon is you think, you know, and so you go out and you build something that nobody uses, okay? And we've done that a lot and it's expensive. It's an expensive mistake. You think, I know what people want. They need furniture models, okay? We thought people at Polygon wanted furniture models. So we created a team that was gonna do furniture. Very expensive to do furniture. Not only that, we realized too late that um, there's it's already filled. <laughs> there's already like four other marketplaces where people want furniture. The reason people subscribe to Polygon is because the niche that is being unfilled currently that we fill is materials and textures for Archviz. Specific materials that they can't find anywhere else. That is why people subscribe to Polygon. So our furniture models, yes, people use them. They're nice. They look fantastic. And they are the best ones that I would recommend to anyone. They were very expensive to create, but they're not the main reason that people subscribe to Polygon. If we'd spoken to people about it previous to building it, um, we would have learned that lesson. So, and every company will tell you this. They'll tell you their, their, their money burns, so to speak, 
where they thought something was what people wanted. Turns out, nope, it was not. So you got to talk to people. Um, and the third advice I would give people is like most people that are interested in starting a business are themselves very good at the thing that they're creating a business in. My wife is very good at making cookies. You are probably very good at 3D or um, you said product visualizations. Um, you are probably very good at that. That means you're not the mindset to succeed in business. Um, it's not <laughs> it's not the right hat to be wearing to succeed in business, okay? So there's a very good book I'd recommend called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gruber uh, or Grober, whatever. Um, and it lists out the, the key problem of why most small businesses don't succeed. And it gives the example of um, there's three hats. There's the entrepreneur, there's the manager, and there is the technician, okay? The technician is what you are. Okay. It's what I was before I started Polygon and, and Blender Guru. I was an artist myself. I love this thing. I was good at it. And that comes with the problem of, I need to do everything myself. Okay. I'm the artist. I got to do it. I got to, oh, no, no, no. You can't. All right. Let me do this. I'll do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you're reluctant even to hire other people to do things that you're bad at, right? Like bad at bookkeeping or doing your taxes or, or answering emails. I'm bad at those things, but I was holding on to them because I thought, you know, what, what, what's that saying? Uh, if you want something done perfectly, do it yourself, right? That holds, that's such a stupid phrase. It, it's not even true. Uh, people think that they're good and they're better at it than other people. Like, again, I watch a lot of Gordon Ramsay Kitchen Nightmares. That's a key problem that all these egotistical restaurant managers have is they don't even want to let the staff do the thing that they hired the staff to do. I mean, the, the classic one was the Amy's Baking Company, that crazy episode, which if you haven't seen that, you should check it out. Oh, it'll drive you crazy. Um, but they had staff and they didn't trust them to, to put the food into the, um, the computer, right? So they would go to the customer, they'd say, the customer would say, you know, uh, two pizzas, three burgers, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then they would have to go to the computer and there would be the old fuddy-duddy manager, <laughs> right? Using the computer. And they would tell him what, to, what they ordered and he would put it in wrong, right? But he, he didn't trust the staff to do it himself. And so he was putting it in wrong and making mistakes that the waiters then had to go and go, oh, sorry, we forgot your order, blah, blah, blah. It was, and it was, it's just so stupid. You watch this time and time again and you realize you're doing it yourself with your business, right? So you have to relinquish control of it. And that's something that that book outlines perfectly. The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gruber. Highly recommend it. It's my go-to book that I would give to anybody who's like, I'm gonna make a business. It's like, hold it right there, get that book. Um, it explains it perfectly, the problems with... Um, with most people starting a business. So it's it, it, it's a learning process to step out of the technician role, um, to, to sort of put on the entrepreneurial hat, uh, put on the managerial hat. Um, the, the difference, oh yeah, the, I guess to explain the other two, the entrepreneur is the the one that's making all the big decisions, like the, the vision, right? The overarching vision for the company, like which direction do we want to go? The, the analogy is like um, the, uh, what is it? There's the, if you're going through a forest, right? 
there's the people with the machetes and they're like smashing through the, the, the forest, like, and they, they're chopping through as they go through and they're marching through the forest. The manager is making sure that everybody's machetes are sharpened, that they've all, uh, you know, done their stretches in the morning so they don't pull a muscle, um, that they're, they're doing like a, I don't know, weight training or whatever to ensure they got maximum, whatever. They've got the food, the caterings organized, whatever it is, right? The entrepreneur is like climbing up the trees and going like, which direction are we going? Okay, so those are the three roles. The entrepreneur, the manager, the technician. Oh, the te- oh, did I say the technician is the guy with the machete? Okay, so anyways, doing doing the work. So um, yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's the biggest problem is like most technicians, most artists, most people who are very good at what they do, they go, I'm gonna start a business because I'm very good at this thing. And then they fail at it spectacularly because they wanna hold on to the control of doing the art or the thing that they think that they're perfect at and that nobody else can do. And they're wrong at it. They're, I mean, people are just way better at it than they are. Um, so that that's a lesson that you need to learn. And it's a, it's a very good one. You know, stop being a perfectionist, right? It's okay if something is 95% of the way there, if you didn't have to do it yourself, because it means you can be doing other stuff for the business that needs to be done. Um, so that is a huge uh, value save there for the company. So uh, yeah, that's my advice, uh, for, for starting a business, just a general, uh, general business, uh, goes, oh, and another book I'd recommend as well is Running Lean by Ash Moria. That's how you say his name. Uh, that's a brilliant book as well. And that relates to CG models. If you're selling models or whatever, it's, it's about product. So it's also applicable to a business. Any business needs to have a product that you're selling. And it's about talking to users, user interviews, talking to future customers, finding out what are their problems. It actually gives you a script on like when you do an interview with whatever, if you go to a conference and you're talking to someone, you want to figure out what are their problems. It gives you what to actually say. That's a brilliant book. So I'd recommend uh, that one um, as well. Um, And that's my advice there. So thank you for watching this podcast episode. If you liked it, please give it a thumbs up and I don't know, rate us five stars on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast from. And I will see you in a future episode. If you have questions for the next episode of the podcast, uh, please go to blenderguru.com forward slash podcast question. And all you need to do is uh, upload your video question there. So it has to be video. You literally take out your smartphone. That's all you need to have selfie mode. And then in 30 seconds say, Hey, I'm so-and-so from, you know, the UK or whatever. My question is blah, blah, blah. That's it. And uh, yeah, if you've sent through questions in the past and it hasn't been featured yet, don't feel discouraged. It could just be that I'm saving it because I save all the questions and I'm trying to categorize them into like featured episodes where we talk about one thing constantly. So don't lose out hope. Um, it might be in a future episode. Um, but yeah, blendiguru.com forward slash podcast question is where you can send in the questions. Thank you for watching. See you in a future episode. Bye.